information in this podcast is meant for the education of clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and treatment, and individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. Hello and welcome to the APT and Neurology Section Vestibular Special Interest Group podcast today. Migraine is a complex hereditary disorder which leads to a variety of symptoms, and the most commonly recognized clinical symptom is that of a headache. But migraines are also characterized by dizziness, visual distortions, hypersensitivity to sensory stimuli, and vertigo. The relationship between migraine and dizziness was recognized as far back as the 19th century, but it was back in 1999 that vestibular migraine terminology was given by Marianne Dietrich and Thomas Brandt. And it took almost a decade for a joint consensus statement from International Headache Society and the Baroness Society to come up with the diagnostic criteria of vestibular migraine. Our guest today was one of the chief members of that committee. I'm joined today by Dr. Joseph Furman. He's professor in the departments of otolaryngology and neurology and is the head of balance disorders in University of Pittsburgh. He has multiple accolades and is one of the pioneering uh, physician in the field of vestibular migraine. He's a neurologist and I'm absolutely humbled by his presence today. Thank you so much for joining us for the show today, Dr. Furman. Oh, you're very welcome. So for our listeners, um, what actually is vestibular migraine and how is it different than a regular migraine? So vestibular migraine is a subcategory of migraine that is characterized by vestibular symptoms. Um, There may or may not be headache associated with an individual attack of vestibular migraine. Um, And the vestibular symptoms that go along with vestibular uh, migraine overlap with other vestibular conditions and can include vertigo, uh, spontaneous vertigo, positional vertigo, visually induced vertigo, head motion induced vertigo, um, and differentiating between vestibular migraine and other vestibular disorders can be challenging. Is it a common entity that um, one would get to see in a neurology clinic? So vestibular migraine is very common. And the patients who have this may present to a neurologist or to an otolaryngologist or to their primary care physician, uh, depending on where they live. and particularly what country they're in, as different countries have different referral patterns. Um, As far as how many people have this, there was a a very important uh, study done in Germany uh, where they estimated that approximately 1% of the population has vestibular migraine. And that's a huge number. And I think most people who work in uh, tertiary referral centers for dizziness 
would agree that vestibular migraine is probably the most common condition we see that is more common than either benign positional vertigo or Meniere's disease. That is uh, very interesting because I don't belong to a tertiary setting. We have a very, um, we have a general neurology clinic and we are often sent patients who are just experiencing dizziness. And sometimes I, as a physical therapist, can one of the persons to be helping with the diagnosis or having a patient sent to a separate headache clinic. Now, to share with our listeners, what are the most usual presenting symptoms of a migraine? I know you mentioned a few, but for someone um, for whom we would like to get diagnosed or we should keep our eyes and ears very alert, what would be the most usual presenting symptom for this category of people? So the um, International uh, Vestibular Society, the Baronet Society, has developed diagnostic criteria. And these diagnostic criteria do not include any laboratory testing. Um, and they're purely historical. So um, any healthcare professional, uh, including, of course, physical therapists, can make a diagnosis of vestibular migraine um, aside from one criterion, which is not explained by another vestibular disorder. But if we talk about what characterizes vestibular migraine according to the diagnostic criteria, first of all, patients should have migraine, and that is that they should have migraine that would be considered diagnostic based on the International Classification of Headache Disorders. So first and foremost, if you want to make a diagnosis of vestibular migraine, your patients should have migraine. After that, um, as I mentioned, there are vestibular symptoms and they should occur um, either with or without headache but at least 50% of the episodes that they have should have headache and they should, those headaches should be migraineous type headaches and they should be, the symptoms should be aggravated by routine physical activity. And importantly, these episodes should have photophobia, and phonophobia, as you mentioned, sensory sensitivity to both light and sound. And also some of these may have visual auras, typical of a migraine aura that would be seen with a migraine headache. Now you asked what's most typical. And one of the challenges of vestibular migraine is that there really isn't anything particularly typical. Patients may have positional dizziness. They have may, may have visually induced dizziness. They may have spontaneous dizziness. Um, and as a result, the exact character of the patient's symptoms 
are not what helps you make a diagnosis of vestibular migraine. What helps you make the diagnosis is that these are patients who have migraine headache according to international criteria and have with many of their episodes an association between migraine headache and or migraine features along with their vestibular symptoms. That's very good to know because I think I was slightly con uh, confused between the presence of um, the vestibular symptoms was very important, but I never uh, understood the idea of the patient initially having an underlying migraine. You think as a clinician who's um, initially starting off and um, not know much, just having a copy of the international classification would be a good idea. And also the diagnostic criteria that was given to us by Lempert and uh, you were there in that consensus statement. Do you think it's a good idea to have a little copy just in case there's confusion or, or one should primarily just go back and later on look at it or... What is, what is your thought for like a new clinician who's, who's struggling to um, guide their patient? So that's a good question. One of the things that we do um, in my balance center is we have developed a diagnostic interview for determining whether or not someone has migraine and a diagnostic interview for whether or not someone has vestibular migraine. And these diagnostic interviews are based directly on the International Headache Society criteria for migraine and on the Baronet Society criteria for vestibular migraine. I might um, add that the International Headache Society is part of the uh, committee for the Baronet Society criteria of vestibular migraine. So uh, these internationally accepted criteria for vestibular migraine are also agreed upon by the International Headache Society, which is very important. So not only are these two societies not at odds with each other, but very much in agreement. So back to your question, um, I think it's important to read the criteria in advance so you know where you're going with your thoughts. And with a diagnostic interview, it can be very helpful. In my um, clinic, these uh, diagnostic interviews are um, performed by all of our clinicians, the, the audiologists, the, the uh, the registered nurses. Um, so it's very straightforward to just ask the right questions and see what the answers are. Um, it's really not magic and you don't have to memorize them. It should be written down and you should just look through them and ask the, ask the right questions. If I'm not mistaken, Dr. Furman, I believe um, you have published those uh, interview questions in one of the papers, because I do remember going through them, or if I, um, I'm wrong. No, I, they're published. They're published. And of course, anyone who's interested uh, in receiving them, um, if they, we can figure out a way they can contact you or, or me directly, and we'll get them this material. 
Thank you so much for sharing it with everybody. Um, so when we think about vestibular migraine, um, just like for migraines, we do think that um, there could be a presence of um, electrical and vascular changes in the brain. Do we know of any pathophysiology or are there any um, themes for why a vestibular migraine occurs? So another good question. There are theories and speculations about the pathophysiology of vestibular migraine. There's some research, um, but obviously we need more. Now you mentioned vascular. There was pri prior to um, recent thinking, the concept that migraine headaches were vascular headaches. But more recent um, literature suggests that migraine is not a vascular disorder. It's a neurochemical disorder uh, that has effects on electrical activity in the brain. And <clears throat> one of the theories regarding the pathophysiology of vestibular migraine is that circuits in the brainstem primarily that are important for migraine start to um, affect the balance circuits as well as the pain circuits uh, in the central nervous system. There's something called the trigeminovascular reflex, which has to do with pain pathways uh, in the meninges and the fifth nerve, the trigeminal nerve system. There are well-known connections between vestibular pathways and these pain circuits. There are two neurochemicals that seem to be particularly important. And these include norepinephrine and serotonin, 5-hydroxytryptamine. And <clears throat> via these two neurochemicals, it appears that there are connections between the pain pathways and the vestibular pathways in patients who have vestibular migraine. And are there any groups that are more susceptible to getting vestibular migraine or all ethnicities, male, female, they have equal um, chances for getting vestibular migraine? Yeah, another good question. So let's take what we know first, which is that females have a five to one likelihood um, as compared to males of developing vestibular migraine. So 15% are male um, approximately and the other 85% are female. So um, obviously uh, in your clinic, you're gonna see a far, far larger number of females with vestibular migraine than males. But that's where the data sort of ends. We don't know about 
um, ethnicity as a factor. Um, and uh, so, and in, you know, in my experience personally and talking to other people, um, I have never heard that, um, you know, a certain racial or ethnic group is more likely than the next, as far as we know, to develop migraine or vestibular migraine. Dr. Furman, migraine has been considered to be a hereditary disorder, and we do need a migraine, underlying migraine, to do a diagnosis for vestibular migraine. So if I understand correct, that means people who will have vestibular migraine will also have uh, will also have this as a hereditary disorder. You say as a headache disorder? As a hereditary. Oh, hereditary. Ah. Yes. So yeah, the, the hereditary factors here for, for vestibular migraine are really complicated. Um, the genetics of migraine in general are complicated. What I tell my patients is that there isn't a single gene that causes or prevents you from having migraine or vestibular migraine. And everybody, of course, is... Um, a product of the genes that they get from their from their parents. So um, it's actually quite confusing. There seems to be some relative risk if somebody has a family history, but it's quite frequent to see someone with vestibular migraine who has no family history whatsoever of migraine or vestibular migraine. And this seems to be especially true if there is migraine on the, uh, the uh, paternal side because, the, um, because men may not manifest migraine as readily as women. So if the, the genes coming through the, the paternal side, there may be no family history um, and yet the patient still has the vestibular migraine. So it's a factor. I always take a family history. I'm always interested in it. Um, it can help with diagnosis and, and sometimes with treatment to know about family history, but the, the genetics are relatively unknown and uncertain. Dr. Furman, you have been doing and you've been seeing patients with vestibular migraine for a very long time. Now, does the Baroness Society criteria for vestibular migraine identify patients well, or there are these subset of patients in whom we may fail to identify? I know you mentioned earlier it's, it's, it's difficult with some patients, but how strongly does the the joint uh, consensus statement that came out from both IHS and Baroness Society hold true for vestibular migraine? So another good question. Let's talk about sensitivity and specificity. That is, how good are the criteria at making uh, a diagnosis uh, in someone who has it? And how certain can we be that when we make a diagnosis, they actually have it. Well, there's no gold standard for vestibular migraine. It's all clinical. 
because there's no laboratory test, no blood test, no x-ray, um, no special brain scan um, to say this person has it and this person doesn't. So as a result, we don't know precisely either the sensitivity or the specificity of the criteria. However, the criteria were basically designed to be specific and not sensitive. That is, if someone meets criteria based on the Baronet Society scheme, they almost certainly have vestibular migraine, very little doubt. However, if someone does not meet these criteria, they may or may not have vestibular migraine. There's a category of probable vestibular migraine that's out there where they meet some of the criteria, but not all of them. And I know in my practice, I see patients where I think vestibular migraine is the most likely diagnosis, but the patients don't meet criteria because they haven't had enough episodes or the migranous features aren't as prominent. So one needs to have a high suspicion of vestibular migraine and realize that even if patients don't meet the criteria, they still might have the disorder. Now, um, you said we don't have lab tests. And when we initially are seeing patients, we're taking the history. Now, are there any specific clinical signs that um, can help us identify these patients? Um, are you uh, personally sending any of these patients for any vestibular exams like uh, VNG exams, or do you primarily rely on just basic clinical exams of ocular motor signs and history? So as mentioned, one of the uh, criteria in the diagnostic scheme is that the patient's condition is not better explained by another disorder. And that's where the laboratory testing comes in, primarily vestibular laboratory testing and imaging. There's a lot of overlap in disorders regarding symptoms, that is in vestibular disorders. And performing audiometric testing, vestibular laboratory testing, brain imaging, all of these have to be done thoughtfully. And their main purpose is to identify other disorders, that is disorders other than vestibular migraine that are causing the patient's symptoms. Now you mentioned signs, and of course by signs we mean, we mean physical findings. And there are no signs in the diagnostic criteria. You'll notice that they don't talk at all about nystagmus or laboratory test abnormalities. 
And in, in my experience, physical examination, um, including looking for nystagmus, does not reliably help with making a diagnosis of vestibular migraine. And as a result, those findings are not part of the diagnostic criteria. That said, there are many studies in the literature that look at people who have a diagnosis of vestibular migraine based on the criteria and then ask, well, what types of eye movement or vestibular laboratory abnormalities do they have? So we can talk about that briefly. That is, if you look at a population of patients who have vestibular migraine, what abnormalities might, might we see? But if you look at the situation in the opposite direction, that is, okay, my patient has a particular abnormality. Does that tell me they have vestibular migraine? That doesn't work. That helps a lot. So would you discuss a little further on uh, what would you see in case we are differentially diagnosing them from other conditions? Well, there are several disorders that are relatively common, like benign positional vertigo, Meniere's disease, even vestibular neuritis, or what's now called an acute vestibular syndrome. And then there are more unusual conditions like some strokes, um, ataxias, malformations. There, there are many different diagnoses for patients with vestibular disorders. If we're looking for the common disorders, testing for benign positional vertigo is fairly straightforward. Either they have um, the findings consistent with a posterior or lateral canal cupulolithiasis or canal lithiasis, and we think, okay, that's what they have. Um, for Meniere's disease, there's a typical history. Um, and if there's an acute onset um, with a circumscribed course, it's less likely to be vestibular migraine. One of the overlaps that I think is worth talking about, particularly for physical therapists, is positional dizziness and even positional nystagmus. As mentioned earlier, one of the vestibular symptoms that can be seen in patients with vestibular migraine is positional dizziness and positional vertigo. And there's a term, migranous positional vertigo, distinct from benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. The findings, the physical findings are different in these conditions, typically, um, and the complaints are often different, though they may overlap. If you see a patient with typical upbeating, torsional, time-limited nystagmus, 
with a Dix Hallpike maneuver. That's benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. But when a patient comes in and their positional complaints are more nonspecific and you test them, you might see a persistent rather than paroxysmal positional nystagmus that might be low amplitude, but again, persistent. And that might be related to migraine, that is vestibular migraine. Thank you so much for bringing that up, uh, Dr. Furman, because I was going to ask you that because that is one of the most challenging things that I've uh, come across when I am um, seeing my patients for BPPV. And um, I have often seen that sometimes patients can have this underlying non-fatiguing nystagmus and sometimes it does fatigue and could be purely torsional and I may miss uh, uh, a vertical component to it, or patients can present with the pure horizontal nystagmus, and often it leads to a confusion in um, making a diagnosis if it is BPPV or it's migraine. And I've had cases where there were BPPV and a migraine, and they were two different sets of um, um, nystagmus that I saw. I will give an example. I had this patient, she um, was um, diagnosed with vestibular migraine uh, two years prior to coming to me. And um, she had migraines um, as a adolescent and she was in her mid thirties. And um, she presented um, with episodic vertigo, which would last just for a few seconds and um, she would get better. And then she would have days where she was not experiencing um, any, any vertigo. Um, her vertigo was not associated with the headaches. Now the neurologist thought it was um, vesper migraine. So as a result, they would continue to increase her medication. However, it would not resolve her problem. She came across somewhere that there was something called vestibular rehab and she wanted to try it. She comes to me and I see an upbeating left torsional nystagmus. So I thought it was a left posterior canal um, BPPV. I treat her for that. It was complete failure. I see her again. Um, I still see the nystagmus, but this time I try um, testing her even in sideline test position. Um, and it was very interesting to see that it was during the sideline test on her left side that an upbeating right torsional nystagmus was elicited and I could not provoke it in a Dix Hall Pike position. And it turned out that she had a right-sided BPPV and I, out of curiosity, asked her to come back to me when she was fine and she should come back to me anytime she would like to. And she came back to me about six months later. She had no reoccurrence of BPPV. And I just wanted to see if uh, another nystagmus was present or not. And it was very interesting that a left torsional nystagmus and the patient was non-symptomatic was present and it did not fatigue. And um, that has always confused me and um, I would like to ask you this question. If some of these um, oculomotor signs like a nystagmus is present in between two attacks of um, vestibular migraines. 
So that's a very interesting patient you're presenting and you've brought up an important point, which is that vestibular migraine and other vestibular diagnoses are not mutually exclusive. And in fact, what we know is that dual, uh, 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 that, that is two diagnoses, two different vestibular diagnoses in the same patient um, is fairly common. Uh, you mentioned the patient who had vestibular migraine and benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. Some patients have vestibular migraine and Meniere's disease, another yes. common overlap. And the other point that you brought up was the concept of what we call interictal signs and symptoms. That is, in between attacks, can patients have abnormalities on their physical examination or mild symptoms that they would not categorize as an attack, but would still be present, particularly with certain head movements? And the obvious answer is yes. I mean, you saw a patient with that. And <clears throat> frequently, when I'm seeing my patients, almost always, in fact, they are not in the midst of a vestibular migraine attack because if they're having an attack, they don't come to clinic that day. <laughs> yes. They don't feel well enough. Um, and yet, despite seeing patients when they're not having an attack, we often find laboratory abnormalities, um, particularly, as you've just mentioned, positional nystagmus that may be uh, asymptomatic. We also see abnormalities on rotational chair testing where patients have an asymmetric response. And we now know that vestibular evoked myogenic potentials um, may be bilaterally reduced, not severely, but still outside of normal limits. Um, so we see vestibulo-ocular reflex asymmetries, positional nystagmus, possible central suppression of otolithic responses. And these are all findings that we're seeing in patients with vestibular migraine in between attacks. Yes, I think that adds to more confusion, especially for someone who's starting off new. I wanted to ask you about Meniere's and vestibular migraine. They are very difficult to differentiate, especially in the early phases. I read somewhere uh, where it mentioned that, especially if you see someone in an early phase, both of them, um, you cannot differentiate, patient may have Meniere's or vestibular migraine, but the presence of audiometric tests um, usually points towards Meniere's. Do you have any thoughts on that? So that is true. Um, now, we did a study many, many years ago and found that about 10% of patients with vestibular migraine have tinnitus. Um, or some other minor hearing complaint. But if we do an audiogram on a patient and they have a low frequency sensory neural hearing loss, that, that's what we think of as Meniere's disease. And I don't think 
anybody would argue that those are the kind of patients who might have both conditions, but certainly have Meniere's disease. More often than not, we're seeing patients who have normal audiogram, uh, audiograms, and we think, well, maybe they still have a Meniere's type picture, maybe a vestibular only Meniere's. So it's not officially Meniere's disease, but it's a Meniere's disease variant. And this is very controversial. Um, and as you point out early on, uh, it can be absolutely impossible to differentiate between these two conditions. And what I tell my patients is what I think is the truth, which is you may have Meniere's that looks like migraine. You may have migraine that looks like Meniere's, or you may have both, in which case some of your attacks are Meniere's attacks and some are migraine. And it's even more complicated because in some patients with migraine, maybe not even vestibular migraine, when they get a Meniere's attack, it acts as a migraine trigger. So they end up getting a migraine attack, excuse me, a Meniere's attack, and then suffer from a migraine. So it, it, it can be very confusing. And what I often do is use treatment to help make a diagnosis. Um, now there are some new types of imaging that are becoming available, particularly in some Asian countries, to image the inner ear and look for physical evidence of endolymphatic hydrops, which is the underlying pathophysiology considered for Meniere's disease. But those scans are not readily available everywhere, and there's still controversy as to how they should be interpreted. So now we have two diagnoses, that is Meniere's disease and vestibular migraine, that are primarily clinical, aside from, as I mentioned, some patients with a low-frequency sensory neural hearing loss on an audiogram. And if you have two disorders and they overlap clinically, it really can be impossible to tell one from another. Do you tend to follow these patients for a certain amount of time, Dr. Furman? Oh, definitely. These are the patients where we try to get to know them and understand what their problem is, ask them to keep a diary of how often they're getting their symptoms and which symptoms they're getting, especially if we start them on treatment for Meniere's disease or for vestibular migraine or both. Um, and then we try to see them every several months to adjust their medications and see how they're doing. You've taken us to our next uh, segment that is uh, intervention. So once a diagnosis is established, um, what are the different kinds of interventions that are initiated? Um, if you can differentiate between an acute vestibular migraine versus more um, 
in between the episode if any interventions are provided at that time. Yeah, the, the treatment is, um, this is a challenging topic. And, you know, I see many patients with this disorder and I say, well, this is what you've got. And of course they go, well, thank you, doctor, but <laughs> what are you gonna do about it? And there's so much variability. You've mentioned acute and interictal, yes. but there's a lot of room in between those two because some patients can have hours or even days of symptoms that come and go. Sometimes people come in and they say for weeks at a time, I just don't feel right. Um, so you have to adjust the treatment depending on the time course and severity of your patient's complaints. And the easiest to treat really are the patients with well-defined, acute, time-limited symptoms. Because you can give them a vestibular suppressant or an anti-nausea agent, and they're less miserable for a few hours, and then it's over. And then you make a decision as to whether or not to put them on preventative medication they're having several episodes a week, of course, you seriously consider it. And if they're having one or two a month, then you're probably not going to put them on prophylactic medication. Um, so you really have to tailor the treatment uh, to the individual patient, particularly with this disorder that is vestibular migraine. One of the things that I like to do, and, and this too is, is controversial because there's no literature about it, is I like to ask my patients to avoid triggers. And there are certain food triggers that I have found with my patients to be particularly helpful to avoid. Things like caffeine, uh, red wine products, um, aged cheese with tyramine in it, artificial sweeteners, artificial colors. And I ask my patients to avoid those things, at least as part of an elimination diet for some period of a couple of weeks to see if it makes a difference. Because if I have a patient who's um, consuming uh, energy drinks or lots of caffeine, Sometimes I can have them stop that and then they feel better. And then I've avoided giving them medications. The other um, intervention that's controversial are supplements. Now, magnesium is considered an anti-migranous agent uh, as is riboflavin and coenzyme Q10. Many neurologists prescribe these uh, for migraine. If you look at the literature, are we certain that they work? No, um, but it's my practice to ask my patients to consider taking these supplements along with um, modifying their diet and other lifestyle um, issues that may arise particularly sleep. 
Um, we haven't mentioned sleep, but uh, the role of sleep is becoming increasingly recognized in vestibular disorders. And particularly in migraine, I find if I have um, a healthcare worker um, who's on doing shifts, um, that's the most common, um, that can really be problematic for patients with vestibular migraine. Um, so non-pharmacologic remedies are always what I try first. I do, I do share with you um, the use of um, lifestyle diary and I have been giving that to my patients. I had one patient, it was interesting. She was using this certain dressing in her salad. And when I had asked her to put a diary, she's like, yeah, I said, why don't you take that out and just switch to a different, um, probably just olive oil for now. And uh, it was very interesting. She stopped the dressing and her migraines improved. So um, just, like my readings and like you have shared, we, we continue to share that with our patients. And um, it's always good to know as a physical therapist that there are certain um, things that are non-pharmacological. And we, if we don't suggest to the patient, at least we can discuss it with our MDs and um, they can decide it further. I also wanted to ask you, do you find vestibular migraine intractable? Well, unfortunately, there are patients who we don't help as much as others. Um, intractable, you know, has its own meanings. Um, almost always, we help people. Even if we only tell them that what's wrong with them, it helps them. Because then they're not worried they have something else, and they stop looking around for somebody to tell them what's wrong with them. So um, I think we always help some, but as you point out, there are some patients who we help more than others. And, um, but if a patient comes in and I've tried um, the diet and supplements and various um, pharmacologic agents, and I'm still not really getting ahead of it, I often consider that something else is going on, either a different medical diagnosis that, that I've missed, that is vestibular disorder that I've missed, or um, a psychological component, uh, such as uh, an anxiety disorder, or what's more recently been um, described as persistent postural perceptual dizziness, triple PD. Um, we're increasingly aware that this triple PD uh, exists. And in my patients who really aren't responding appropriately to vestibular migraine, I always try to think of something else I'm missing rather than just saying, well, I'm sorry, this is your diagnosis, but um, I really can't help you. That's very good to know. Um, that we continue to give hope to our patients. Moving um, from that, um, have you seen these patients use these medications for a very long time over their life course? 
Yeah, uh, this is a good question. Um, what I tell my patients is, is just the opposite, that it's most unlikely that they will require medications long-term. Now I tell them it could be months or even years, but in my experience, it's extremely unusual that a patient is maintained on an anti-migranous uh, pharmaceutical agent for vestibular migraine for let's say 10 years or you know some very long period of time. It just, it's just not the nature of the condition. Um, we mentioned earlier that, that the condition is seen five times more frequently in women than men. And one of the, the aspects of caring for female patients is hormonal changes, hormonal changes on a, a monthly basis and then on a, a, a lifetime basis um, based on menarche and, and um, menopause. And these events in the hormonal um, situation are, are, are very powerful. And um, so the simple question that you asked is, are patients usually on medications for a long time? Um, the general answer is no, they're not. And whenever I start a patient on medication, I'm very careful to tell them we are not making a lifelong decision here. We're trying to get your condition under control. And then after we do that, there's a high likelihood that you will no longer require the medication. That's a very positive outlook for the patient, I feel, because um, I do see some patients are very stressed just about the need or the requirement for using medication. And often I come across this question, my medication has this side effect of dizziness and the doctor is telling me I need it. And um, so for a physical therapist, um, would, are there any noted side effects um, that we need to keep in mind whenever we come across these patients or anything of assurance that you tend to tell your patients, uh, even if there are certain side effects that are seen with these medications? So this is another important question. Um, the reason being that I see my patients usually once and then my physician assistant will see them in follow-up. Whereas physical therapists, generally, whether they're seeing a patient with vestibular migraine um, or some other disorder, are generally seeing the patients much more frequently, at least for some short period of time. So I work very closely with the physical therapists in my area, Pittsburgh, um, and my medical center, to make sure that the physical therapists understand the medications that we prescribe, understand the side effects that their patients may have, and really work as a team um, to help make sure that the patients are taking their medication, taking the correct dosage of the medication, um, and, um, and helping with medication management. We're, I'm fortunate that in Pittsburgh, we have a, a very close relationship with our physical therapy network and they have access to the same medical record 
that I do. And almost every day I'm getting a note from a physical therapist who says, I saw one of your patients and there's this issue, often medication related. Does their medication need to be adjusted or do we need to find a different medication? And um, it's really uh, very much a team effort. So the more the physical therapists understand about the different medications that are used, the better. Um, I understand that some physicians aren't as welcoming um, of uh, input from physical therapists as other physicians, but I'm not one of those. It's for me, it, it's, it's a team. I'm just one person on the team. And um, I actually rely on the physical therapists. I'll sometimes put in a note, I think the patient might benefit from medication, but I want to see how they respond to physical therapy first. And that sort of coded message that when the physical therapist reads that, they know that they're on the alert to see how that patient is doing uh, and to help decide whether or not we might want to start medication. Um, this is very uplifting to know that um, we have physicians who are in close contact with physical therapists. I am very lucky to be in one of the teams where my uh, physicians rely on my input and whenever things change, um, they are more than willing to see the patient again and uh, modify things or guide me in what I can do further. Um, but I understand and I agree with you, not everybody's lucky and um, we don't always tend to get the patients from one particular neurologist and uh, challenge can be met. Um, but I've, I've noticed that in my uh, practice, um, it's just the way we approach sometimes if um, we approach the problem and we seek suggestion from the neurologist, they're usually kind enough to like take a consideration. But at times I agree, it can be extremely challenging. Now, you have been working very closely with your physical therapy team at Pittsburgh. Uh, when do you usually recommend um, patients with vestibular migraine to begin rehab or um, that group of patient population you don't usually send for rehab? Yeah, this is, this is uh, an important issue. Um, I, I can tell a, a story, just, you know, my closest colleague, of course, is uh, Susan Whitney. And Sue and I have been working together on vestibular patients for more than 30 years. And early on, I said to Sue, I said, there's no way that physical therapy can help patients with vestibular migraine. So she said, okay, let's do a study. Well, of course, she was right and I was wrong. Um, and we published that study. And, and um, we know that physical therapy can help. But I must interject that it doesn't happen often that physical therapy makes patients worse, but it does happen. I can't give you a percentage. Maybe it's only one or 2% of the time, very infrequent. But when it happens, it's the patients with vestibular migraine. And what I've learned, um, and again, in collaboration with my physical therapy colleagues, is that as soon as the patient has a diagnosis of vestibular migraine, the physical therapist has to be extremely alert 
to the possibility of not overdoing it with these people. These are people who you can make worse. And these are people who may not follow your advice and may not do the home exercise program. I agree with you, Dr. Furman. And um, I have had this challenge myself. And I think uh, more uh, less is more in this population and uh, being very sensitive to the changes that they feel if they're properly documented if one has to share the patient with someone else uh, is very very key and um, I have met just like you said I have met with close to 90% of success with this patient population. And I think the most success comes um, not from the control of vertigo as much, but more from balance and that anxiety um, that this patient population carries with them. Um, I think that has been the most successful uh, with uh, PT. Um, I was just probably two or three days ago, I, I have been seeing this patient um, who refuses to see anyone. She's, um, she has had, as per her diagnosis, an intractable migraine uh, without aura. And she has had migraines as a child and she's in her late sixties now. And um, she said this to me, she's like, I go anywhere, they make me more dizzy and I just don't want to do it anymore. So um, that was that was a red flag for me. And I was like, okay, she's someone we need to really start from the scratch from the bottom. But there was a very interesting thing um, she mentioned and it came across my mind and I thought, I'm speaking with you and I'll probably ask you this question. She has been extremely sensitive to light um, throughout her life, but now she has been getting a little bit more sensitive to light. And I um, randomly asked her the question if she has cataract. So she does have cataract, but they are not ready for surgery yet. Have you come across um, an, uh, hypersensitivity in people um, if cataract, if they have cataract or like um, things like that? Yeah, so this is a very important point. When uh, caring for somebody with vestibular migraine, vision is the key word here. You must be very aware of their visual abilities and whether or not they have any vision diagnoses. Now you mentioned cataracts. That's of course very common in, in older individuals, but even in younger individuals, we're seeing people who are wearing contact lenses um, and they may have unusual contact lenses like bifocal contact lenses or one near lens and one far lens. We also were seeing patients who have progressive lenses. Um, and these progressive lenses, uh, multifocal lenses, can be particularly challenging for all vestibular patients, but, in, but especially for patients with vestibular migraine. And um, in this patient you mentioned, it, while it's true that uh, early cataracts 
can be problematic, particularly in people who have sensory uh, sensitivity. Um, I also would want to know whether or not this patient has any visual issues, such as are they wearing multifocal lenses? Or yes. they are, okay? And then is there any strabismus or ocular misalignments? No. Okay, so as soon as I see a patient who's older with vestibular migraine, I sort of break the bad news to them, which is in my opinion, they should not be wearing multifocal lenses. And of course, it's bad news because they look nice and they're expensive. And if patients already have them, they like the way they look and they don't want to buy new ones. But um, I think it's really important um, to have a conversation with your patients about their vision. Multifocal lenses are challenging because they're only in focus more or less in an hourglass pattern um, and upper right and upper left gaze is blurred uh, by design. That's the way they're designed. And of course, in order to change the prescription, you have to tip your head. If you tip your head down, you're looking more toward the, more through the top of the lens. So you can look for distance. And of course, if you wanna look at near, you have to look more toward the bottom of the lens. And as a result, when you're walking and your head's moving up and down or just looking around, you must move your head, not just your eyes, in a particular way to be looking through the part of the lens you need to look through in order to have the object you're looking at be in focus. For otherwise normal people, it's not a big deal. That's why there's so many progressive lenses out there. They look good and they get the job done for near, far, and in between. But when patients have a vestibular disorder, and in many patients with vestibular migraine, progressive lenses provide an additional challenge that, that can be really um, overwhelming. Yes, I have... Um met that challenge as well. And this is really good information, Dr. Furman. Now, in your knowledge, um, do patients do better in rehab if they are undergoing medical management for vestibular migraine or the success is almost the same for with and without medical management? So, of course, I only have my own experience and we've published some of our experience. Um, but of course, I'm a medical doctor, so I'm always seeing people who are under medical management of some sort or another. Um, but I can tell you what I believe based on my clinical experience, even if it's not um, a randomized controlled trial, that the combination of physical therapy and pharmacotherapy is better than either one alone. Do some patients do just fine with physical therapy without medical management? Of course. Do some people do just fine with medical management without physical therapy? 
of course, especially if they're young and otherwise active. But there are many patients, in my opinion, who benefit from the collaborative work of the physician and the physical therapist. Maybe they need an as-needed vestibular suppressant or anti-anxiety agent, or it's time for them to be put on an anti-migranous agent for some number of months because they've reached a plateau. So it's just logic would tell you that if a patient is seeing both a physical therapist and a medical doctor, they're going to have, in general, a better outcome than either one alone. On an individual basis, of course, you can't say for sure um, who that would be. But on a population basis, I think it's safe to say that more um, is better because you have different people looking at it from uh, different angles. Right. Now, finally, um, is there any future research that's going on on vestibular migraine? So I would say, um, sadly, not very much. You know, vestibular migraine isn't a high profile disorder, you know, like cancer or heart disease. And of course, now with this terrible pandemic, um, you know, it's, there's a different focus. Um, so there's some research out there, but not very much. Um, this kind of research is expensive to do because it's all patient related. Uh, there are no animal models. Um, uh, doing uh, research on, these, on this patient population is especially challenging because the presentation is so variable um, from patient to patient. And even within the same patient, uh, from month to month, they can change. So it's, it's very difficult. Now, there, there, there's some recent literature out there. It's a, some beautiful work by Rick Lewis at Harvard showing changes in sensory sensitivity. Um, and uh, there's some work coming out of Europe looking at uh, functional imaging um, in, in patients with vestibular migraine, mostly from, from Munich. Um, but aside from that, there really isn't um, much in the way of research um, going on. I wish there was more. I think um, all of us who are involved with patients who are uh, having vestibular migraine, um, I think for them, it is very key that we are able to resolve their problems as fast and with as little medications and probably as little physical therapy as they may need. You have been wonderful, Dr. Furman. This was such a wonderful um, lecture and such a wonderful podcast. And um, I'm absolutely wise now, wiser than what I was before. And I thank you so much for sharing all this wisdom with us today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much. Okay. This is, this is your host, Puneet Daliwal, for today's Vestibur podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this interview, which has been brought to you by the Vestibular Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. For more information on the Vestibular SIG and the ANPT, please visit www.neuropt.org.
Thank you.